Hey guys, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Welcome to Papercut. This week we'll be talking about Fight Club. For those of you who don't know, I'm already breaking one of the most important rules. Is a story about a guy who basically starts a fight club, for lack of a better word, tired and frustrated with the world. He and this other guy that he met one random day decide to start this underground brawling scene. And what they find is that this brawling scene grows and suddenly their membership grows as well and slowly but surely it spirals out of control first it envelops his life his work then it envelops other people's lives and work and slowly but surely it envelops somehow everyone's life and work like the entire country gets involved somehow and fight club then mutates into this super discuss uh, super anarchy project called project mayhem and it just gets, it just keeps spiraling from there. And I think, I think I will have to spoil it. In the very end, you find that the original founders, the main narrator, and the other pivotal character, Tyler Durden, are in fact one in the same person. <gasps> no way! <laughs> and this is why you shouldn't talk about Fight Club. But anyway. Uh, you just ruined so many people's uh, Fight Club experience. Oh, well, I'll have to live with that. And I guess what I find interesting is most people only think of the movie when they mention Fight Club. I mean, do you know it was a book when it was when I first brought this topic up with you? I actually didn't know. I I like very other, a lot of other like-minded people have only watched the movie and thought that was it. And I thought Brad Pitt was uh, very good in it and the other guy was also very good. Edward Norton. <laughs> I thought Brad Pitt, as that charismatic Tyler Durden, was on point. I'm amazed he didn't win an Oscar for that. He didn't? I don't think he did, oh, no. And, um, I mean, Leo DiCaprio didn't win an Oscar for, like, um, Django Unchained, so... I mean, you know? Oscars are weird. Um, it's also directed by David, uh, David Fincher, the movie... Uh, the book itself was written by Chuck Polinick and he's made a little bit of a resurgence nowadays because he's seen as the the voice of disgruntled and sort of tired men, if that makes sense. That voice that says, I'm, like, society's treating me as a guy like shit and it'd be nice mm-hmm. if it just went back to I can see normal. that. I mean, I, get, I guess I can see that from... Um the book if it's anything like the movie because there's a lot of that in the movie so what other works has, has he done that makes you say that so I've only I've read a f- another one called uh, Invisible Monsters and I think Invisible Monsters was one of his first works I wouldn't mind talking about that but there is a lot of crossover between that but it wasn't necessarily about sort of men being tired and emasculation and all that it was more drag queens and uh, transgender people it's very interesting it's interesting in its own way it's definitely not an accurate portrayal of transgender <laughs> people i think they might actually be insulted by if they came out today but i do i do think that at some points there were thoughts about making a movie about that but anyway let's get back to fight club i think that's not the most obvious themes you know yeah the most obvious theme is obviously consumerism and emasculation as well you know what I mean so when in the very beginning and I'll say it first um, the book and the the movie the overriding theme is the same like 
same plot twist, same love interest. The only difference comes in that towards the very end, um, as in what they actually do. So in the movie, they decide to blow up the banks or whatever and start everyone from zero again. Yeah. Whereas in the in the book, they blow something else up, and actually Tyler wants to blow himself up as well. In the movie, that's not the case. And in the in the book, he doesn't shoot himself to get rid of his his imaginary friend because okay. guess what if you shoot yourself in the cheek your hallucinations don't necessarily go away um, I mean you don't know if you try right you don't know until you try whereas in the book uh, he just vanishes oh really he just vanishes so what why did why did he just vanish was there, was there like some yeah there was uh, some resolve that came and then he was like okay I don't need him anymore something something along those lines I think um, that people were going up to him saying don't do it don't do it don't do it and suddenly he just because I was thinking of this other film called A Beautiful Mind uh-huh. and you know you knew in the end like he still has those imaginations with him he just chooses to ignore him so I thought like when you said he didn't he didn't choose to kill his imagination I thought that was what happened but that's it interesting just, it just went away it was a very weird one I, I, I either way like I wasn't happy with the the movie way of removing Tyler Dead and yeah. all the it's quite over the top and honestly I when I watched it I actually didn't know what was happening because like he just shot himself in a cheek and suddenly like Tyler Durden just died and I was like what the hell is going on here right if I thought he blew his brains yeah, out, yeah which same case, same I was, I was like wow that is that is wow I mean that's a fair enough way to that then you just realize he shot himself in the cheek which is somehow connected to the brain that part of the brain mm. but anyway back to it so consumerism and emasculation and actually, I found this link really interesting. How they put these two together. So like, when you know when when I hear consumerism, I always hear like soulless, dreaded corporations taking over, telling me what to buy, marketing, Facebook. I didn't. I wouldn't necessarily make the jump to think I'm being emasculated. If that makes sense. Uh, what do you mean by being emasculated? As in just having that dominant sort of male drive. Or you know, just losing the losing my claws, if that makes sense, getting declawed, not wanting to fight my way through things, I suppose emasculated. It's also a bit like saying, if I was less emasculated, I would be going out there trying to get things. You know, like putting putting myself out there, just being bold. I guess that's what I'm trying to drive at. Whereas like being in control of your own life being in rather control, than yeah. being, having others dictate what you should do and what you should be, I guess, buying and selling, all that stuff. Exactly. Like a sense of power. Yeah. I, I think that's one way to put it. And I don't think there... I, th- I use the word emasculation simply because at the end of the day, it is... That's what the books and the movie... It is a men's club. It is a men's club. Yeah. And to push... Uh, to really hit... To really nail this point home, like... At one point, he even joins a testicular cancer group, and one of his friends, big, is it Big Bob? No, Big Bob. The guy oh, with the, the man. Oh, I only remember his name. Oh, what's his name? Robert Paulson. Oh my God! How did I forget Robert Paulson? Yeah, his name was Robert Paulson. Come his on, name. man. <laughs> but you mean yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, it was derived from you know testicular cancer, and he had he had man boobs from it as well. So like estrogen, right? Est- yeah. too much estrogen. Because he took too much horse steroids. <laughs> oh my god. And it's just so over the top. But at the same time, I think this being over the top drives at the point. But we'll get there in a bit. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily put consumerism 
and emasculation necessarily in the same sentence, but obviously the writer has done it right here. Mm-hmm. And I found that very interesting. And I was trying to figure out, like, what exactly, why exactly that's the case. Like, how does that happen that uh, you you have this consumerism aspect and this emasculation aspect and how you join them together? And the only sort of explanation I can give myself is maybe we're just marketed to... to uh, to say we should want this we should have this we should want this and therefore that sort of sense of control is just gone it's like mcdonald's telling you you know if you really want our food come and buy it something like that yeah, yeah. they're selling you an experience already and so you end up don't actually experiencing anything yourself i thought that was very interesting you just regurgitate the experience of the people say that's actually quite that's actually quite interesting because like you see that in a lot of like um I guess reviews on restaurants. Mm-hmm. There are like I don't know, uh, four hundred good reviews on Open Rice or something. I went to one last weekend. It was like a burger joint, mm-hmm. and there was like four hundred good reviews, and I was like, oh yeah, okay, it looks pretty good. So I went in there and ate it. It was at best like, it was at best a uh, three point seven out of five. But it was like it was like four point two out of four hundred reviews, and and my friend and I were like, no way. So I guess there's that. So what I'm trying to say is people there, they are drawn to the idea that it should be good. So when they eat it, then they trick themselves into thinking it should be good. And that's kind of what's happening here with the consumerism as, and, is, and emasculation is people, um, they think what... So they let others dictate what they should buy and what they should be enjoying mm. so like we all have a couch in our house but how often do we actually use that couch for example like there will be people there will be people who have couches in their house but they don't use it but they have it there because it's like what a house should be or same with the tv you know i guess an interesting part is how this sort of emasculation manifests itself as the book goes on as well and as the story goes on as well when you when you get emasculated like that is your first instinct to start punching each other, other in the face. I mean, my first instinct is, is to punch is to punch something in the face. You know, not necessarily other people, but I would get a oh, you tricked me, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But no, that's very over the top, obviously. I think that's important though, because a lot of the things that happen are over the top, and the over the topness is to show a specific point. So I don't know. I mean, have have you ever done martial arts? Or any of the combat sports? In my brain, yes. In your brain, yeah. I know 42 different ways of saying martial arts. So. <laughs> oh, it's a bit like that Richard Feynman yeah. um, joke. Like, <laughs> if I tell you a bird, what a bird is called in every language, do you know more about the bird? But, I mean, I, I guess the point I'm trying to drive at is there is something primitive when you actually do co- uh, combat sports. So I used to do a bit of boxing back in the day, and I'm not going to lie, like, I wasn't good. I get punched in the face a lot, but even if you get punched in the face a lot, you walk out of that ring and you actually feel accomplished. There is something weird about that. I didn't. I, I remember the first time I ever stepped in the ring. I didn't land any punches, but I walked out thinking, "Hey, I did a lot. I managed to do something. I stepped out. I put myself out there. I got hit, but happy. But I did it. And to some degree, I think maybe that's what this." This is this is another aspect of consumerism as well because you think about it back in the old hunter gatherer days. If you wanted something, you had to fight for it. Yeah. You had to kill for it. You had to run and look around and gather things for it. And nowadays, you can just buy it. Like you have enough money, 
buy it. Don't have enough money. Hopefully, your social welfare system takes care of you, <laughs> and you don't have that. Then you start a fight club. Yeah, I think in that sense, like all the challenges are gone, and when you have no challenge, it's really hard to sort of develop some sort of meaning around it. And so I think this was in the movie, and I'm, I can't really remember if it was in the book or not, but he mentions that back in a hundred years ago they had the Great War. Or whatever, and then nowadays there's just no wars, there's no Great Depression, and the Great Depression is our lives, a battle for our soul. Hmm. It, it's sad, but when you think about it, we do live in very nice times, and that sort of in itself becomes a problem in that we can't. There's not much. There's to not do. much. There's not much. Yeah, I I was gonna say there's not much sort of like the Great War aspect to compare yourself to. Because like, if you were living in the Cold War, there's always this constant fear of like, um, I guess you know shit might go down pretty soon. But now, I guess now there is an aspect of that, but not as much. So what I'm trying to say is that our expectation of how things can go bad is not as great as before. So there's less comparison to how bad things can be, if that makes sense. So I suppose. In that sense, it's our baseline of what happiness is and what fulfillment is is a lot was a lot lower back then. Yeah, probably. yeah. Sorry, yeah. That is exactly what I was trying to say. Okay, fair enough. I think I can. App- I appreciate that point because right now, if you think about it, it's like it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Once you have basic security, food, shelter, water out of the way, mm-hmm. and then you get you have that out of the way. What what more do you have to build up to? And then suddenly you realize, oh God, it's just so hard to keep. Your fulfillment so high, and I think that's why, because it's so hard to find that extra piece of fulfillment. A yeah. lot of people just get lost. It's human greed is unlimited. It's like there's there's no there's greed. no. I guess so, yeah. But as in, like, you always strive for more. You always strive for more, yeah. And I guess that striving gives you some purpose, right? You don't, that's the whole point of purpose. Like you want something, and when you don't have that something to want, it can be quite dreadful. Yeah. I mean, imagine living your life not knowing what you want to do, right? which I, which is what I guess this book's about, right? Yeah, I mean, they start a fight club. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think... It's like, oh, I don't know what to do, just smash everything up, you know? Ooh, I have your thoughts about this. I heard that the truest version of yourself is yourself, is, is yourself when you're five years old. One way to ask yourself what you really want to do is to put yourself in your five-year-old shoes and ask that question again, like, when you were five, what did you want to be? I don't be? even remember what I was thinking when I was five. That's yeah. so long ago. Like, what did you want to do when you were five? Inventor, not gonna lie. For me, it was, I think it was astronaut. I think I started off wanting to be an astronaut. That was, like, my formative years. I mean, it's the true self. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the idea. Whether or not yeah. it's, like, feasible, possible, actually what you really want, it's a different story, right? I guess so. But I don't know. I don't. I'm not really a big fan of the whole truest self theory because, because people change and develop. There's. I don't believe in a truest self theory. I think that everyone's just a consequence of what they're put under. The the so-called truest self is just when they're undeveloped. What what they started off with. Not the. I won't say it's their true self. It's their initial self. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's a it's a bit like that that boat thing where you take a piece of plank out and you replace this uh, pieces of the boat. Is it still the same boat? That sort of thing. Mm. Uh, 
without, uh, I'll explain better next time, just in the interest of time. And so you start a fight club, and I guess this drives us to the next theme as well. And these are all underground brawl scenes, and so it's very illegal. And basically, it's a massive middle finger to the system. Yeah. The, the system being like consumerism, like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can only do this, this is what you should like, blah, blah, blah. That sort of malicious, even though it might not be like intentionally malicious, it's there. That's how they feel. He gets the cops in it as well. He right? gets the cops in it as well. But I think this is why I like the law about it because all, all these guys that joined, they initially were pissed off that the system was letting them down, not giving them any purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, fighting gave them something to do. And then they start Project Mayhem. And it basically becomes another government, another system, with Tyler <laughs> at the very top. So these guys come in like, oh, we don't like our government, we don't want to be told what to do. And then they start fighting, Project Mayhem comes along, and suddenly this charismatic leader comes and says, you're all pieces of dirt, now do my bidding, do this, blow this thing up, buy a gun, do this, start a fight. And this continues. It, It's saying something about power, isn't it? Like, It's almost saying if we have no go like we will just follow someone else's vision. I mean I just feel like that's the oldest story in a book it you is know, people disgruntled they go out fight overthrow it it's dealt with another with another like monarchy slash government slash whatever you want to call it <laughs> you know we literally discussed this last week in, in, in Animal Farm so <laughs> I just find it funny how it always comes back to this it's a cycle it is know? a cycle it's right? a cycle yeah. the Greeks believed in it Chinese believed in it like things just come back in cycles it's not whether you believe in it or not it's just what happens uh, yeah there's exactly. no there's no like oh this culture has a less has less um, has less chance of this happening after like a overthrow of power like no I feel like everyone wants to cling on to power and such that when they do get the power they want to cling on to it and that becomes a vicious cycle it's and there's no avoiding it it's quite sad when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. There's no way of avoiding it. It is. It is a. It is a very pick of poison. Yeah. Kind of situation. But anyway, mm. is uh, there's more political theory than, or I guess, there's more like human nature, I guess. See, I I didn't re- I didn't necessarily make this point immediately when I wrote uh, when I when I thought about this, but that now that we're onto the sort of this cycling nature, one of the questions you uh, one of the questions we asked is how do exactly do we get out of it? How do we get out of this cycle? And what's interesting is this book and its relationship to Buddhism. A lot of the original uh, Buddha, so Gautama Siddhartha, if, uh, Buddha just means enlightened one. Mm-hmm. So before he became the Buddha, he asked himself this question like, how do I, how do I end suffering? How do, I, how, do I, how do I end it? And his answer was, you can't. You can't end suffering. However, there is a way through it, if that makes sense. So you will feel the suffering, but there is a way through it. And his goal at the end of the day was he was trying to break this cycle of, mm-hmm. of suffering, suffering and suffering and suffering, and so much so that he became enlightened and became the Buddha. So if his philosophy to how we can let go of this suffering and these cycles is to detach ourselves from our identities, possessions, and everything, to some degree, like you can see it working in the book as well. To become that John Lennon song. To become that John Lennon song, yeah. yeah. Except John Lennon was, he did not practice what he preached. Oh, no. <laughs> he, was a co- he was a communist with one of the nicest flats in New York. Um, see, the Buddha wanted to break the cycle. And so he, what he said was, okay, we need to detach ourselves from all these things. And I think that's what the, the author was trying to drive as well. 
So when you actually look at some of the lines, and these appear in both the book and the movie as well, for example, like, it's only after you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. You know, once you detach yourself from a lot of things... You know what, when you said that, Mm -hmm. I think of that Black Mirror episode, Nosedive. Oh, yeah, yeah, when the one where, with the social scoring... social credit system, and then... Well, yeah, but you get zero points, and then suddenly you realize I can't lose anything more. So you just do whatever you want. When you're a rock bottom, right? Yeah. And that's actually very liberating when you yeah. think about it. Another really interesting one was if you think about it, I think this was in the movies. I'm not 100% sure if it was in the book. Uh, he goes on about bees, okay? The queen bees. And so you think, like, in a hive, who do you think would be the, free, the happiest, the freest? The queen, right? You think it would be the queen, right? And he goes, when you think about it, the queen is forced to sit there and lay eggs non-stop, and the drones are allowed to go out and fly, find flowers. And so even the, dro- the drones aren't the most important ones. Like They are more free than the queen. The queen is the drone slave, not the other way around. <laughs> and when you think about it, I'm not saying all companies are like that, but for a lot of companies, you can see the boss as being the slave to everyone else. It's That's true. A, a lot of people will disagree with me. It's usually the executive board. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the CEO of- is just there. It's like, all right, you got a short straw, so you're gonna be the face of our company. If any shit goes down, you you're getting the straw. Oh, you know what? You're getting the end of the stick. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, like apparently in the US, like when you started, when they started sort of presidents and presidencies and every everything, you had to pretend that you didn't want the presidency at first. <laughs> so you had when whenever it was like, I mean nowadays you have to say you really want yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. but. Back then, apparently, he was like, no, I can't accept this. Oh, okay, fine, I'll accept it, I'll accept it. Apparently, there was a bit of that. What was the rationale? It's just like, it's just, is it because, like, it shows, it's meant to show that you're humble or, or something like that? I think it's meant to show that you're not too keen and eager for power. Okay. Otherwise, it's a bit scary, right? Like, checks and balances and all that. But that's changed, obviously, throughout the years. Well, it's <laughs> not like being president actually gives you any power. <coughs> Kennedy! <coughs> I mean, didn't stop a bullet. <sighs> Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> and there is an art to it in this sort of art of letting go. Because if you've... And he, it's not even just possessions. Like, you should detach yourself from possessions. He was like, you should detach yourself from things like your identity as well. Who mm-hmm. you think you are. And so I guess that goes back to your point about that truest self. You know, like, does it really exist? And... His answer is really, no, you're constantly changing. And so once you let go of that truer self-notion, you're free to actually become anything you want to be. Yeah. You have no nothing holding you back, right? So I suppose that's one way of looking at it. Like, yeah, we're living in a very consumerist world, but there is a, there is a way through it. There is a way through it. The only thing I didn't really like, but the only thing that I didn't, sorry, didn't really follow through is more exactly how you go about it so yeah you detach yourself from all these things but it's easy to say right? it's easy it's to like, say. like everyone knows the path to success you know work hard work hard you know all that all that stuff but if everyone if everyone knows it why isn't everyone successful it's the same it's yeah. the same stuff right it's it's not when you put in a situation you know what to like sometimes you know what to do but you don't know how to do it Actually, a lot of the times it's like that. So, so you go like, oh yeah, I'm going to study hard. Okay, how do you study hard? Like, do I study this section? What if I don't understand something? Do I, do, I go, go, do I go really into this thing or do I leave it for another day? How long should I leave it for? That kind of stuff. Right. So like, yeah. So it's like, so it's like, 
yeah, it's all good and well that I know the overall sort of high level what I should do, but once I actually start doing it, it's just what yeah, do you do, right? Yeah, exactly. It's um. Oh, I had a friend who used to say, "Oh, Nick, it's really easy to lose weight. All you have to do is eat less and work out more." And I go, "Okay, it's it, what you've described is simple, but it's not easy." And I think people mix this up a lot. And I think it goes to your point. Like yeah. you see, it's a subtle difference. Like study hard. It's a simple idea, but it's not easy to implement. Because once you actually get down to it, you're like, "What's enough? What do I actually have to do?" Uh, so, and I think this is where that idea sort of comes in as well. Like like you said, you know, saying letting go of everything. Yeah, it's easy to. It's easy. Sounds easy to do, but once you actually pull into the nitty gritty of it. How do you actually do it? Uh, it also means like letting go of all your, like literally everything. So like, there might be some things that people are willing to let go. For example, like their job if they don't like it, or like, uh, or their house if they don't want to necessarily live in it. But like, what about their friends and their family and all that stuff? That's also that that's also um, included in the whole letting go of everything bit. And mm. I feel like when people say you're gonna let go of everything to to get anything you want, they don't. I feel like it's said a lot of times without actual realization of like the scale of how huge that act that act is. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean that is that's the problem of a lot of things oversimplification, mm. and I don't think it's necessarily bad because you have to start with a big idea and then then you can drill down a bit more. Yeah, that that's true. Sense. I guess like people are just always too content with the big idea and they think they can just work on the big idea it's like this whole notion right? if I work on this one simple big idea then I've technically worked on everything that this yeah. player entails but it doesn't work like that yeah it's I, like I saying it, I, it's like saying I want to I want to like construct a staircase that climbs 100 stories but only have one step like yeah sure you can climb that one step and you will mm. be able you, you have done 100 stories but can you? Oh, do you know what actually? You know what actually grinds my gears? People who do something for a week and say, "Oh yeah, it's really easy. I've been doing it. I've been doing it for a week now, and, <laughs> and it's really good." See, I'm always skeptical about people who try things mm. and like they go, they really and they really push it. They say, "Yeah, I've done this. It really works. It really works." And you ask them how long they've done it. If they say something like, "I've done it for ten years," I'll be like, "Okay, I'll take your word on it." If they say you do it for one year, I'll be like, okay, I'll take your word on it. But, you, but then you say you do it for one month. And I'm like, hmm, will I take your word on it? You tell me you do it for a week, I'm like, fuck off. And sometimes it's, um, there's a danger of actually, they think it's easy during that time, like the initial week, but then they get either exhausted or they start getting to the hard stuff or sometimes even both. And then that's when the actual shit comes in. Exactly. And that's when the actual growth comes in. Yeah, right? yeah point is not easy (laughs) yeah not easy not easy not easy i guess another point to touch on from the book is and the movie in fact is i think it's become more relevant nowadays because when you hear discussions of this kind in the past it wasn't really a thing and i think it's this notion of mental health yeah and um of course the re the main narrator he suffers from insomnia you can also say see some points parts of depression definitely playing out in him so you like to really drive the point home he goes to these like support groups to cry in the very beginning of the movie just to cry oh yeah 
So there is he is depressed with he life. He cries and then he sleeps well, right? He sleeps yeah. well after he cries. And so there is an element of that to acknowledge. And I think it's worth acknowledging that now, though I will say I don't think it's a big part of the book. Mm. It's not what they were trying to drive at. If anything, it was I think the whole mental health issue is a is a driver to introduce the big plot twist to say this guy's chemical brain chemicals aren't working correctly. This is the plot twist. Uh, he's actually got split personality disorder. So even if, even though like maybe they were trying to touch at mental health issues, it's definitely not a good. Would you also portrayal. think that um, it's meant to be like a. Like, because he started off with the support groups and then afterwards he got the split personality. So is it also sort of like a conventional methods won't work in this case, like kind of aspect in it? Ooh, I never thought of that. I think there is an element of it. Like, because he seemingly got better, right? He seemingly got better. He cried and he slept. It seems like his problems were solved. And then it turns out it wasn't and he just created an entire new entirely new personality it's weird isn't it because yeah. he doesn't even go to like a therapist he goes to a doctor for a while who just says go to, go to these support groups and <laughs> see what true misery is I don't think I think once you I think this is like one of those things where you dig into it you see how absurd some points are so back to yeah, that whole I feel like I'm reading too much between the lines <laughs> here um, interestingly enough you know uh, I, this is another point. I it just dawned on me when we had when we're having this conversation. Whilst we're having this conversation, um, so in the book he goes, everything is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And for the longest time, I've been trying to figure out exactly what he was trying to drive at. And the only thing I could think of was like maybe he's saying that nothing we do is original. Everything's done before. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. really to look forward to. And then when I thought about uh, and because everything's just soulless, you know, if it's just a copy of a copy, right? But the one thing I found interesting was when you really think about it, this is a story of uh, Jekyll and Hyde. It's it's Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. And when you think about it, you could even say that Fight Club as a whole is a copy of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> so is he trying to play with us there? Is he? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. Right. I mean. Yeah. It was the, the saying, I always come back to this, good artist copy, great artist steal, right? And maybe he's just stealing a lot. Who knows? I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no pattern to uh, the general plot device, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. So I've read the book. You, you haven't read the book. I right? haven't, but would you recommend? I actually would, yeah. Because there's some things I feel like you can watch the movie and you'll get the main gist, the main story. But once you actually see the words written out, you internalize it a bit more. I'm not saying necessarily internalizing the fighting is a good thing. But mm-hmm. some of the key messages like sort of letting go of certain parts, like detach yourself from your possessions, detach yourself from your sense of self. Mm-hmm. I do think it is healthy. So I do think, yeah, I would, I would recommend this. Um... If you're reading for story, I'd say watch the movie. I think the movie's really well done. If you're a really avid Fight Club fan, you know what happens. And you're just reading just to internalize a few things a bit more. Go for it. Okay. So that's Fair how enough. I'd say. I I wouldn't say go out of your way to read it. I wouldn't say you have to read this once in your life. Yeah. Do that. Fair enough. Fair enough, right? Yeah. All right. So yeah, you don't have to add this to your list. <laughs> 
Well, my ever-growing list, right? The ever-growing list. Oh, well. All right, guys. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening in. If you like what we do, follow us on Spotify. Just type in Paper Cut Podcast in your search bar or in any of your other preferred streaming sites. If you want to leave us a comment or let us know what you think, you can email us at papercut.cast at gmail.com or Instagram at papercut.cast, no caps. Or Twitter at papercutpodcast, one word, no caps. Look forward to seeing you guys next week for another episode. Until then, I'm Nick. And I'm Eugene. Peace out.